if people were thinking that they were going to vote for Bernie Sanders once in February and then once in November and then their better world was going to happen and they had the rug pulled out from them and now they're feeling like they got no hope. I don't mean to be unsympathetic to that feeling, but that wasn't the way we were ever going to win any. You actually want everyone to vote, pass a law requiring everyone to vote. Watch how many Democrats will run away from that if you propose that. <laughs> a significant number of the same ones talking about how important it is to save democracy. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, and this is Steve Grumbine with Macro and Cheese. I have Rohan Gray joining me again for part two of our interview. We're going to talk a little bit about politics here and the framework in which a lot of these great ideas that we've been advancing, you've seen guest after guest with Rohan leading the charge with so many great bills that they put forward, but we've watched the political climate and we've watched as progressives have worked tooth and nail with various groups to create this intersectional movement only to see the establishment collapse and retrench and block us. The concept of a fair primary seems ludicrous to even make that statement at this point, given that Bernie was head and shoulders above everyone. Everybody was for Bernie. The rallies were huge. The people were in the streets. They were invigorated. They were ready to go. And then all of a sudden, Super Tuesday comes and you watch one by one as the establishment actors dropped out and fell behind Biden. You had Obama step in, you had Clyburn step in, you had Bill Clinton step in. Yet all the establishment actors retrench around the very conservative Joe Biden. And I guess my question to you, Rohan, as we get started with this is, what can progressives do? It doesn't appear that electoral politics is something that is given to progressivism. It seems like it's a very tough balance to be able to both be pushing for change, trying to create new ways of bringing about equality and a better planet, better environment, a better life experience for the average person, for the public purpose. And yet it seems like everything is stacked against us. How do we make progress in this environment? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't have all some magic answers or keys. There are different roles for different people and there's different kinds of knowledge that it all kind of comes together in a way that is greater than the sum of its parts. So I don't think this is a matter of if you just ask the right person, you're going to get the answer that's going to give you the key to everything. But I think probably the first point, you know, I don't want to sort of put my law professor hat on, but is to sort of question the question, which is I'm not sure asking a question like is electoral politics a failure is really very helpful. I think understanding the limits and the potential of electoral politics is one thing, and obviously very important. Understanding the relationship between electoral politics and other forms of activist and organizing is also very important. 
And that can cause you to be more or less sanguine about electoral politics as the place to devote your time to or as how you evaluate claims about electoral politics. But I don't think it requires you to put your thumb up or thumb down in a categorical way because it's a category error. In my opinion, it's like someone saying, well, I've got cancer and it turns out paracetamol isn't stopping my cancer. So is paracetamol good or bad? And, you know, we've got the data point that my cancer is getting worse. I've been taking a lot of paracetamol, so paracetamol must be bad. The problem there is you asked the kind of wrong question or you're trying to apply the wrong solution to the wrong problem. So when it comes to electoral politics, at least in my opinion, it's a part of politics. It's a part of an institutional structure that we call the US government, short of a violent revolution that burns the whole thing down and rebuilds it. Those are the places where when you pour the water of energy down, it trickles down through those grooves. But that doesn't mean you have to believe the hype, right? It doesn't mean you have to believe that they do what they say they do or that they function the way they say they function or that the world of politics is reducible to that layer. So I come from Australia. I don't vote in America because I can't vote here. I like to think I still have an ability to make a political impact in this country. And I like to think that I don't have a naive view that reduces the kind of political impact or the kind of political strategies I'm interested in involving myself in to electoralism. But I think that's different to then saying, I'm never going to be involved in anything that has a sort of whiff of electoralism again. Because as you know, we just had a whole talk about it. I work with politicians to develop policies. Now, I'm not developing those policies because I think, oh, the Democratic Party is immediately going to get behind those and the Democratic Party is the good party. And if we just get enough people to vote for the Democratic Party, then this policy that's proposed by one of them will get passed. Of course not. That's beyond naive in my opinion. But what it is, is recognizing that For example, Representative Tlaib or Representative Ocasio-Cortez has a massive platform, has a massive voice, has the attention and trust of a huge number of people, and has an ability to articulate important ideas and visions and to coordinate energy of other people in ways that can move other kinds of actions and politics in ways that wouldn't have been moved otherwise. Now, sometimes that's positive and sometimes that's negative, right? There are real risks of being led down the wrong garden path or beginning to trust in more sanitary form of a political force. But I think the reality is that you can't just say that you don't like the outcomes it's producing and therefore just sort of wipe your hands of it because it's part of the institutional landscape. You know, I'm a lawyer, for example. There's some lawyers that spend a lot of their time in litigation. There's some lawyers that spend their entire life never going to litigation and trying to do any kind of settlement or alternative dispute resolution to avoid going to court. There's some people that never have a dispute at all, and all they're doing is setting policy and regulatory standards and interpreting those standards. There's other people who sit in courtrooms and make decisions about conflicts brought by other people. Do I think that judges are the most important way of making legal change? No. Does that mean that I can have a theory of how to make legal change that pretends judges don't exist? No. So that to me is the sort of potentially unhelpful, but reframing of your initial question, which is, I think electoral politics are part of the system. I think you need to look at them soberly and realistically, not as a religion or as a form of procedural mythology where it works the way that it tells you to work. But the answer of how much value does it have probably lies somewhere between everything and nothing. (laughs) Right. But that's a fair statement. I'm speaking as somebody who's trying to speak for other people here. I'm trying to convey the yeah, yeah. of the movement, people that talk to us and come through here. And in our own disappointments, as we had spent so much time watching 20,000 people, 27,000 people 
show up to hear an old socialist named Bernie Sanders in Sacramento, and you see him show up in New York City and Brooklyn. It's just amazing. And then you see him suddenly lose to a guy that wasn't even campaigning. It's just like, how did this happen? I guess what I'm trying to do here is to keep people engaged so that they don't hear these great ideas that you come up with or that others come or Stephanie comes up with and Rashida and AOC and others come up with and get so cynical that they literally check out. Yeah, yeah. So the question I have, I guess, is that while electoral politics is definitely part of it, one of the things I guess is, especially with COVID-19 and the way we've been reduced to telecommuting and so forth, but also with the deindustrialization of the country, the union floor doesn't exist anymore. So the concept of organizing has changed dramatically from the days of trade unions and marks. In this modern era, we are kind of left as individuals. I think that's the neoliberal position by design. But as individuals, how do we create a collective society that has the ability and strength and power to move the needle? Do we have to accept incrementalism? Is this either burn it down or vote ourselves to victory? How does that take place given the realities of the modern society? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing is, I think your initial question was, well, Bernie was leading and then he wasn't. I think this is an area where I guess you could call it realism. I sort of said the word sober analysis before, but some way of looking at the situation where you're trying to understand enough of the factors at play that you're not constantly being surprised. And of course, the world is unpredictable and there's always going to be things that you can't predict. But to have some degree of confidence about your ability to predict the future. So as a lawyer, one of the famous statements of legal realism in the 20th century was Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Supreme Court justice, who said, if you look at the law from the perspective of a bad man, someone who doesn't care about the morality of law, there's still value to the law in the sense that you still want to know what your likelihood of getting arrested or getting fined or something is, right? So if somebody says, hey, I've got this contract, I want to interpret it this way, can I interpret it that way? There's one question of sort of, does that make you a good guy if you try? You know, what does that say about your immortal soul and all these kinds of things? And then there's another question of, well, what is the odds that you're going to prevail if you get a particular judge on a particular day and you make this argument, you know, given broader where we are as a society or where the law is at, et cetera. And that secondary analysis, you could be a complete sociopath and still be very good at it because what you're doing is able to put together a set of analyses that can actually help you make pragmatically useful decisions in the world. So if you look at someone like the Bernie campaign, for example, I think it was always relatively frail. It was frail in the sense that it depended on a fragmented field. It depended on everybody who wasn't Bernie or everyone who wasn't Bernie and some Warrenites, everyone else in the party being fragmented enough that he came through. And that was the kind of Trumpian strategy, right? There were 16 other Republicans by the time they started consolidating, he had blew out this lead. Once it became clear that they were willing to fall in line, and you know, I think Pete's and Amy's staged withdrawals were extremely important in this respect. And then secondly, once it was clear that President Obama had tipped his hand behind the scenes and made these phone calls, that a large amount of the party went along with that. And so in one sense, was it so close to being, you know, one? Well, maybe it was so close in the sense that those parties looked like they were about to shoot themselves in the dick, and then they didn't, right? But it wasn't close in the sense that at any point in time, there was a majority of the primary voters in the party who said that they preferred Bernie to not Bernie, right? And so what happened was one of the eventualities that could have sunk things came to pass and certain Hail Mary options to avoid that didn't come to pass. Now, 
it's one thing to hope and it's one thing to want something to be true and it's one thing to acknowledge that even a long shot has a shot. And it's another thing to think that we had a 95% chance of winning and that it was stolen. And I think the latter is a problem of the lens that you're using, right? The way that you're evaluating your risk and your capacity here. And I think, at least for me, as someone who tries to be a committed leftist, revolutionary, whatever, the odds are always extremely small. The odds are extremely small right up until the point that you win. And they continue to be very small the next day for the next thing you try to win. And I don't think that the history of progress is the history of always inevitably having a good shot. It's the history of very, very difficult things somehow managing to eke through as much as it isn't. And in terms of, I guess, the broader angst that you were mentioning about trying to channel here, I've had students who say, you know, I believe very strongly in rights when I came to law school. And now these readings have made me question this. Maybe that was sort of naive. I'm not religious. That's the closest thing to religion I have is a belief in democracy and the rule of law and rights. And I understand the feeling of, well, you either God exists or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, then I'm living a lie, right? And it's sort of binary. And I grew up in a non-religious family and went to a religious high school, a high Anglican school. And I was very much one of these angry atheists for a long time. And eventually I came to a realization that these institutions have a history, they have a culture. When somebody says God, they're talking about every positive experience they had with their family and their church growing up and the love and the emotion that that word was imbued with everybody that ever taught them words, you know? And it became clear to me that this was as much of a problem of communication as anything else because people used the words like God and religion and church to mean different things than I did. And I was trying to wage war with something that was not what they're thinking about. And so I guess to me, if you think that voting is the expression of democracy and then you find out that it isn't, that can be very confronting. But I think there's a way to come to peace with the fact that I don't believe that there's some sort of person up there who had a burning bush or anything like that, but I can still understand that religion has a social value beyond, you know, the kind of Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris world of just scorn and hate and saying it's all net negative. And I can appreciate that even people who consider themselves secular have a belief system that they're motivated by, whether that's democracy and the rule of law or humanism or something else. So when it comes to what you think about electoralism and political parties and voting and all that stuff, I think there's belief, naive belief, and then there's disillusion of naive belief, and then there's a more perhaps culturally nuanced appreciation of its role as a cultural and political institution that is a little bit more tempered and not about those kinds of absolutes. And when you think about it that way, then your identity as a citizen, your identity as a voter, your identity as a member of a particular town, your identity as someone who has a voice in the American political process, even if that voice is just shouting on your social media or talking to your friends wherever you hang out, all of those layers of society, it's not that you have to accept it wholesale as the savior or not. They're all layers where you can have an influence where something could happen. And sometimes the spark is an electoral spark, sometimes the spark is a grassroots streets movement spark, sometimes it's some event, you know, sometimes it's something like an Edward Snowden that can spark serious political change. But I think that the trick is to have enough of a ecumenical wide view of all of those different layers of society that you can see how they intersect with each other, you can see where they have potential but also where they have limits. And most importantly, hopefully you can develop a nose where you can say, okay, this opportunity is coming down the line and that's one that has a potential to do something. 
Today we're out in the streets. Tomorrow we're talking about a political candidate. The next day we're in the labor unions. The next day we're on social media. The next day we're writing a fiction novel that's going to spark a new social imagination. All of those are legitimate and valid. The only question is in what context and to what extent. With that in mind, obviously Bernie Sanders stuck with it. He went through part one. I'm not sure, you know, I think he had like 12 people at his first rally. And then you saw people slowly but surely getting behind him. I'd never seen this in my life. I'm 51 years old. Yeah. And then you saw some people fall away that felt like Bernie should have taken to the house and fought on the floor of the DNC. And there was a lot of fire and energy and people very angry. And I guess what you're saying basically is, is that when you look at the sum of the Democratic Party, it didn't match up to a win for Bernie Sanders, even under the best circumstances. The Hail Mary was a possibility. But in reality, when you look at all the centrists and the establishment people that are friendly to Obama and others, the chances of Bernie Sanders actually winning were really very marginal at best. Is that basically what I'm hearing you say? Well, I think maybe how you would look at probability might affect how you think about the answer to that. Because in one sense, it was always a long shot, right? But even having the opportunity to roll a dice, like a 20-sided dice where one of the sides is the win, right? Even the opportunity to roll that could be a lot better than the alternative, right? And so I think it's not that there wasn't a path to him winning. It's that it didn't happen. And we can try to understand why that's the case so that we can avoid those kinds of things in the future. I think anyone that says they knew that it could never happen and anyone that believed it was a fool, and I think anyone that said it was definitely going to happen except for this one thing is probably also a fool, right? And I think that the reality is that we don't have to ask the question of, like, would it be better if Bernie Sanders got hit by a bus? Because the fact is he didn't. So it's not a relevant question to worry about worlds in which things would have been entirely different. He ran. When he ran, there was this unexpected wave. Now. We have to deal with that world now. We have to deal with the fact that that wave exists. What is the way to be most useful in light of that? Now, in my opinion, I think that having different strategies is totally valid. I think that it's totally valid for some people to feel like he betrayed them. I think it's totally valid for some people to feel like he didn't betray them. And there's some people to feel like it doesn't matter whether he betrayed them or not because he still represents a resource to be used to push the needle in the direction we want it to go. And the really relevant question then comes down to kind of what do you do next? And if people have different strategies in that, more power to different strategies. But I don't think it has to come down to the ultimatumist referendums. I think he has had a lot of positive impacts. I think he made a number of mistakes. I think he did things I wouldn't have done. I have no idea whether I would have done the things I think I would have done if I'd been in his position. Right. Frankly, I'm not in his position and I have no idea what he knows. I have no idea what 40 years of experience he's had might change how I think. I know what I think, and I can try and push that and make sure that my worldview is as comprehensive as it can be and useful. But if you want to be in the position to make the decisions you think Bernie Sanders should have been, then do that. And I'm not saying go run as a glib response. I'm saying if you want to have the kind of influence where your micro judgments matter, then you have to think about what kind of influence you want to have. One is to run for office. Another is to become a celebrity. Another is to become an important member of an organization that does important work. Another is to identify a particular community or jurisdiction or whatever it is that you want to have an impact in and work out the way to make the most impact there. But I don't think we have to say, oh, absolute 
referendum on Bernie Sanders or not? It just isn't a very helpful question. Unless the question is, do I go shoot him tomorrow? You know, <laughs> which if you're asking that question, maybe you've got bigger problems to worry about. Right? I would never ask such a question. No, no, I'm just saying that's the kind of point where that becomes a relevant question. Otherwise, it's like, well, what are you doing? What are you doing with your time? That's more relevant. Right. So Bernie Sanders was famous for saying, never lose your sense of outrage. Yeah. And outrage is what has fueled a lot of this movement. It's just at the sheer inequality of it all. The numbers don't lie. Since the 80s, the income inequality in this country is shot through the roof. People have no health care. It's horrible. And you see the material conditions of the average working American, and not just working American, but human beings that inhabit this country and around the world are marginally worse than they were before in so many ways. We have a lot of advancements, but the regular people are not really able to enjoy the fruits of those advancements because life has gotten harder in many ways. So with that outrage and with that fear, if you will, of daily living, the conditions by which the average person lives, they don't feel hurt. And they've been stretched through the neoliberal paradigm to not have the kind of free time that maybe they would have liked to have had to coach the kids' ball club or be involved in community things such as politics, even possibly. What would you say to the average person in that respect that is suffering, that looked to Bernie Sanders and saw those programs and saw the Green New Deal and thought about climate change and saw the Medicare for all and thought, wow, maybe I can get taken care of. And then when they started dreaming a better dream and they feel like the rug got pulled out from them, is this the beginning of something or was that the end of something and then we have to regroup? Is there a movement still there that is going to outlive Bernie Sanders? In what way does that manifest itself? Yeah, again, I mean, I don't want to be difficult, but I don't think it has to be either a beginning or an end. There was stuff before, there'll be stuff afterwards. History doesn't close chapters like that. I mean, there've been people fighting for racial justice in terms of slavery and colonialism in America for 400 years. There've been people fighting for gender justice and things that that never went away from the 60s and 70s. It's just that the circumstances shifted, their institutional and political power shifted. And there've been people fighting for environmentalism and things as well for a very long time. So in my opinion, you can trace, I think, 2008 to be a pretty pivotal moment because there was such a large structural break in a large economic trajectory or a large economic kind of super cycle. But that didn't create whole movements. It gave new shape to them and put energy behind things that might have already been there. So Occupy Wall Street had a lot of roots in early anti-global trade WTO protests in the late 90s. Occupy Wall Street, a lot of the people involved there were involved in Black Lives Matter, then became involved in the Green New Deal activism, and then became involved in the brand new Congress and all that kind of stuff that partially was happening before Bernie was supercharged after him. And today, there's still a left movement. There's people running for Congress. There's people organizing different organizations. There's protests. There has been a resurgence of at least union activity related to things like teachers unions in various states. So I don't think that there was a moment where there was no left and then Bernie and now is did the left die with Bernie. There was leftist politics. There were major historical events and there were major social movements that have coalesced in different ways. Even Me Too as well. It wasn't like that's the first time those issues have been talked about, but now they've been given a new energy and now we're in a world where Black Lives Matter, Me Too, climate change, you know, all of these things come together and then you have COVID. I think these are very destabilizing forces and the destabilizing can be a boon and a detriment. I mean, we had a global crisis in the late 20s and then we had this World War II and everything that came with it after that before we had the post-war tranquil consensus period. 
or however you want to think of that. So I think you got to take a step back and not be looking for that one solution. And my heart bleeds for people who are particularly people who will work to the bone so much they don't have any time to think of anything else. And I think that's one of the reasons why labor struggles have always been so central to leftist politics is because the ability to get out of the grind is the first step to actually having any attention. If that means organizing a union in your workplace, if that means changing workplaces to be one where there's a union, if that means engaging in mass protests around those issues so that you have more time, maybe those are the starting points because without that additional mental space, how you can think about anything else. But if people were thinking that they were going to vote for Bernie Sanders once in February and then once in November, and then their better world was going to happen, and they had the rug pulled out from them, and now they're feeling like they got no hope, then I don't mean to be unsympathetic to that feeling, but that wasn't the way we were ever going to win anyway. It was always going to require more than that from them. Absolutely. The Civil War took hundreds of thousands of people. World War II took millions of people. The number of laborers who had their heads bashed in for striking before we got a weekend. It never happens that way. I absolutely agree. I guess speaking for the voiceless here and the people that are not refined and maybe have not had a great political analysis and really are not surrounded by people who are thinking about these things in a more sober fashion, you see waves, right? Things happen in waves. You get energy, they start building up. But throughout history, you see wave after wave after wave of energy. The waves pull back, just like the ocean. They pull back, they retrench, and then they build back up again. I guess the question is, with the squad, with some of the work you're doing, the people that you work with, clearly there are some very smart people that are engaged and tied in that have great ideas and so forth. We got a country that really wasn't exposed to these kinds of ideas at the voter level or at the group level beyond the elite circles. This was their first time maybe believing in a long time because media has been very consolidated. There's only a few places where you can get news and the news tells it from a certain vantage point. When you look at the Washington Post, it's owned by Bezos. So chances are that the Washington Post is probably not going to say things that are terribly against Bezos. People that are consuming that media, they look at their material conditions and they look at what's being said in the media and they're like, they don't really line up all the time. I guess my question is, is that with reality, sometimes not always as it seems, as presented by the press, the not so free press, how would you talk to someone who is looking to you, has looked to Stephanie, has looked to Rashida Tlaib and AOC and others? and saw AOC standing on a desk in Pelosi's office one minute and the next minute calling her mama there, how would you tell them, given the realities of their own existence, they're looking for a champion, looking for a hero, stop looking for a hero and be your own hero, what would your answer to them be? Yeah, or change your definition of what you think a hero is. If you think a hero as a politician is someone that doesn't think politically, then maybe you've got like the wrong idea. If you want someone to be the person that's always going to pick the fight, then you're not looking for a hero as a politician. You're looking for someone who's only there to pick the fight, which is fine. There's a valid role for that person. But if you thought that AOC was that person, you weren't paying attention enough. I think there are people who still think that she's their champion because they think that she's a once in a generation political talent and she's managed to massively push ideas that would have been unthinkable to push in a way that has brought along, you know, quote unquote normies in an incredibly successful way. 
And if you don't value that, you might not agree that that's a reason to think of her as a hero. If you think that she should have been fighting Pelosi, regardless of whether you actually know that that was going to achieve any positive output, just because you think that if you're on the good side, you have to fight Pelosi, then maybe it was a mistake to have that person as your champion. I mean, I have champions. There are people I respect a lot, but I also think that they're human beings. They're not gods. They're not superheroes where you have to like every feature of them. They're human beings who are champions because there are things that they do that are extremely good or extremely unique or extremely impactful. But then there might be things they do that are really shitty. I think, for example, Thurgood Marshall was a positive force. I can say a number of things I have problems with him, right? I can say Martin Luther King was a positive force. I have a number of problems with what things he did. I can think of these vaunted saints who people love to put up on a pedestal. I mean, God forbid FDR, right? Nobody would think he's a bloody saint. So the question of what makes a hero really depends on the context you're talking about. There are people who do work I consider heroic because it's thankless and it gets stuff done and they take the time to not waste everyone else's time. And there are people who are heroes because they find a way to be authentic in ways that others struggle in certain places. You know, There's a whole range of ways to be heroic that isn't just always taking the position I would have taken in something. But if you think of politics as a game of picking champions and then being disappointed when they don't live up to your expectations, then yeah, I would suggest maybe that's the wrong starting point. The starting point is what are you doing with your time? I don't have to spend a lot of time supporting or not supporting Bernie Sanders. Right? What does that mean in my life? Not much. I don't vote. I can't vote in this country. It doesn't affect me even on one day every four years. But it's not that I didn't have any engagement with the Bernie Sanders world. It's just that that question was not a question that actually changed how I acted in any particular moment. So what are you doing? I mean, not you personally, but if you're the person feeling those things, what are you doing with your daily life? What does it actually matter? What did it change your point of view? Was it just that you thought it wasn't worth giving money to her anymore? Fine. Okay. If you want to give money to someone else you think it's more worthwhile, give money to someone else. doesn't matter. If someone else disagrees with you, let them disagree. Was it that you were about to volunteer on her campaign and now you're not going to? Was it that you were going to go phone bank? These are all very, very hyper-specific questions. I like to think work that all of us are doing in some ways are all part of the same broader pro-Green New Deal, pro-progressive, blah, blah, blah. I haven't phone banked a day in my life for one of those people. So what? You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. It brings me to another question, and I really appreciate your answers, by the way. When I look at electoral politics, one thing that I see for sure is the ability to budge the Overton window, to change the world and the variables that people can choose from by championing ideas and putting ideas out there 
that maybe have some energy behind them, or maybe you're new ideas that people have never thought of before. And so this is a great opportunity to educate and to expand the way we think of the world and to get really important ideas out there. So I see the electoral process as a great soapbox, if you will, for us to get these really important ideas out there. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the Overton window and the role of electoral politics in terms of the campaigning and so forth in expanding the Overton window? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is that we, when I say we, I mean my colleagues, and I try to take a pretty, again, realist or you know, institutional or material understanding of those ideas, even as we also try to acknowledge the impact of ideas on those material forces. So I think people in my colleagues at the Superstructure podcast and stuff would push back on materialist analyses that treat ideas as superstructure because they are fundamental to how we imagine the world and how we imagine the world determines how it works. On the other hand, ideas don't emerge in a vacuum. They emerge in real-life institutions. You know, I've taught in daycare centers and K-12 schools and now universities. I've worked on education policy. My father worked on telecommunications regulation. Now I work in places that put me in touch with professional media and the world of journalists. And these are all real things in the same way as the law is a real thing, right? The law isn't just this idea. You just say the law and then say whatever it is. It's human beings who are part of professional legal networks. It's courts and legislatures. It's people protesting and civic disobedience. It's real flesh and blood action. So the impact of ideas to me is as much about the material structure and the production of those ideas as it is about the ideas in some philosophy 101 disembodied that. That means understanding, for example, if you care about economic issues like I do, understanding the history of political economy and how it's taught and the role of higher education and elite academia and how those ideas get filtered through the media to people and how they then get refracted back through popular culture and media. It means understanding the relationship between legal structures and economic structures and how legal ideas either are or are not driving economic narratives. It means understanding human psychology and social psychology. And when you start from that point of view, then a politician is somebody who has on one hand a soapbox and on the other a set of keys to certain institutional rooms and levers. And in another, they have a certain set of credentials and social capital. And, and all of those can be useful or not, depending on the context, depending on the problem you're trying to solve. Again, I don't have to be categorical and say, oh, yeah, politicians, that's how we're going to get these ideas passed. Or, oh, they're useless. We should never worry about all that stuff. Because neither of those are true, in my opinion. You know, there are times when I will take my argument directly to the public. There are times when I will work with people who can do it other ways, you know. There are times when politicians could be extremely useful, and there are times when they may be the very last domino that falls into place. There just isn't one answer to those kinds of things. And I think part of this is, going back to your earlier question about having heroes, part of this is the art of politics, knowing when your judgment is saying this is useful and this isn't, and being okay with that that's your judgment. You, know, you want to spend your time doing this over that? Go for it. Maybe. You want to fix the pipes in your building because that's the immediate problem you need to solve that will then help you deal with a problem on your city council about that thing and that'll make those people's lives better. And next time you come to them with a different problem, you'll have a different kind of social credibility with them. That's not at odds with the Green New Deal. That's just a different way to make your impact. And potholes still have to be filled up. That's, there's still a real world where that happens. How you make an impact there is really 
again, I think more of an art form, a sort of one size fits all. Sure. And when you guys write these ideas and you think through the macroeconomic realities and possibilities and so forth, and you're putting together what looks to be a rather shocking, shocking being different than what we have today, Mm -hmm. proposal that is radical by some measure. And when you put that together, what is your expectation when you put it out to the world? Is it just to kind of get the conversation going? Is there any expectation that these things will take hold? What do you think is that starting point? What are you expecting from it? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is that, again, situating these ideas in a real world is that, like, I am a person with a certain position. My organization has a certain position. The people putting these out have certain positions. And this bill fits into all of those dynamics. But when we get to the actual bill itself, I mean, on one hand, you can't have social change towards something that people don't actually even have a word for yet, right? The ideas are actually an important part of shaping a conversation, and then that conversation becomes part of the overall action, even if it isn't driving it all the time, or even if the overall action isn't reducible to a conversation. There's an internal political economy of different policies. There's all these different kind of competing visions coming out right now. And to think about why we think certain visions are better than others and to try to make sure that those visions sort of take up the oxygen and get the first mover advantage and all those kinds of things are a part of the consideration. Part of it is that a lot of these ideas may not have had an articulation of these problems and not one to toot my horn or anything, but I think some of us are in positions to articulate ideas in ways that are genuinely different from the ways that others have articulated them or solve problems with solutions that others haven't put all the dots together in that way. And when you put them together that way, people go, oh, yeah, okay, that works. It's not that they were sort of inherently waiting for it. It's not that they were inherently opposed to it. It's that by just turning up and doing the work, you know, someone go, okay, if you're the person that's always turning up to your community meeting saying, oh, I've already fixed the pothole, then that has an effect on how people perceive you. And the next time you say, oh, I think I've got this idea of fixing the pipes as well. And they'll go, oh, yeah, okay, they're the guy that fixes the potholes. They fix the pothole pretty well. This looks like a similar problem. Okay. So, you know, someone like Congresswoman Tlaib, for example, comes from a background of direct services work, particularly with people with housing issues. And as I said before, always concerned about real people and how it affects real people. And so for her to be able to propose these big ideas that are often exclusively the domain of a certain kind of person or a person with a certain kind of background, and to have them be high quality, it's a form of taking power. Now, it's not the same as taking to the streets. It's not the same as winning an election. It's not the same as passing a law. But it is a transfer of a certain layer of power in society. And as long as you understand a bill like this as doing those things and maybe doing a lot of other things, but being circumspect about how you think it works. I mean, I don't think that we're going to get 200 Democrats tomorrow to sign on board this bill. I do think that that may not be the most important question, right? Sure. One of the things that came to mind is that as we're seeing the people in the streets for Black Lives Matters, we've watched so many unarmed African-Americans get gunned down in the streets. Can you see the police and they're militarized and they've got lots of powers and lots of ability to avoid prosecution based on the way the laws are written and then interpretation? Well, how did this come to be? And you point backwards to a history in this country of us abusing minorities in general, but then you look back at the crime bill that Biden's instrumental in, that he was very proud of, and even recently had 
resisted saying anything negative about. But you got a guy here who literally was part and parcel with mass incarceration in the United States. People like Michelle Alexander very eloquently play it out in the new Jim Crow and so forth. And yet here he is being brought in to serve as the guy that will fix that problem, presumably, right? I'm just curious, how would you put that into a discussion? Obviously, people see that and they go, why in the world are we going to bring a guy that's been 47 years doing this kind of thing, but now all of a sudden he's the Democratic nominee and we're being told to save democracy. we got to vote for the guy that wrote the Patriot Act. How do we frame that? It's a challenge. I can't even put words. I don't know how to bridge that together. I mean, the first question is, why take seriously those people that tell you have to save democracy this way? I mean, they're probably the same people that didn't vote for Bernie in the first place. So fuck them. So I think the first thing is, this is almost like in the same way as we spent a lot of time in the MMT world saying when people talk about the impact this is going to have on the deficit and then the standard center-left response is, well, no, it won't. You know, like, oh, look at the ways that it saves money or whatever else. And you're saying you've already bought into their narrative. Well, if somebody tells you you need to vote to save democracy and you're like, no, I don't. How dare you tell me that? You know, do you know how bad he is? You're already wasting oxygen. You're giving them your life. Don't give it to them. It's not worth it. Just move on and do another thing. If you think that that's someone you need to persuade, then don't do it on their terms. In the same way as MMT said, don't try to persuade someone about the budget by using the same assumptions as their rhetoric in the first place. Well, here, if somebody tells you you need to vote for Biden that way, don't just don't start from that assumption. If you want to engage with them, do it on different terms that you've decided are the most useful. But I think anyone who looks at Biden's record and thought he was going to be the saving grace for racial justice has got to be deluding themselves. If he does anything good for racial justice, it'll be because other people forced him. And that was something that became either politically expedient for him or because the costs of not doing it were too high. And so the question to me isn't, does Biden in his heart of hearts care about black people? Okay, can we get some change if we push him on that? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe that's still not a reason to vote for him. It's entirely up to individuals about where they fall. Point. I don't have any strong views about, oh, if you don't vote for the Democrats, you're letting Trump win. I think that's ridiculous. I come from a country where we have compulsory voting. And if you actually cared about making sure everyone's vote was heard, you can say all this stuff about forcing people to vote. Or I haven't even heard a single Democrat propose compulsory voting, certainly not high on anyone's agenda. So I find it basically crying wolf when the largest block of people in the country are always non-voters, never people who vote for third parties. It's just a convenient form of scapegoating. If you actually want everyone to vote, pass a law requiring everyone to vote. Watch how many Democrats will run away from that if you propose that. <laughs> it's a significant number of the same ones talking about how important it is to save democracy. But you know, when it comes to Biden, I think you don't have to think he's the savior to think that voting for him could be better than nothing, or that it may be better for left politics to push within a democratic regime. And it's not, I think, even inconsistent or hypocritical or inherently sexist to say that's a different calculus in 2020 than it was in 2016. Not just because you're an idiot if you thought that Clinton was a shoe in therefore your vote didn't count it, but because in some respects, that was a moment where there was a real referendum on whether the world was sort of okay or not, whether we could kind of extend and pretend what we've been doing for the last eight years. And Clinton ran on, you know, America is already great. If Clinton got elected, we would be at brunch right now. I mean, that type of narrative is one that is sort of saying everything's fine, nothing to see here, move along. Whatever else you say about Biden, I think he's coming in at a time when there requires a historic response. The left is institutionally stronger than it has been in decades, certainly much stronger than it was at the beginning of 2016. 
as an independent force both within the party and outside the party. And Biden is coming in as a not particularly popular leader. He's not the person everybody loves to love like Obama. He's not the person who spent 20 years with her husband consolidating the party's machinery behind them like it was with Clinton. This is someone who has spent most of their entire political life assiduously sticking to the center of wherever the party happens to be at that point in time. And his role is being a guy that people like personally so that he can make deals. I mean, that's the kind of personality where having a strong left faction within the party could actually make some change, which is very different from a Clinton that had a whole machine ready to go and was willing to crush everybody who was outside that machine while also claiming that her views were the furthest left. I mean, I was reading just today, and I I think it was Matt Iglesias or someone, I don't respect for his point of view in general, but one of the things that somebody mentioned, I think, in the thread I was reading was that Clinton's campaign was built in part about suggesting that anybody that supported Bernie Sanders was sexist or racist, and that, in fact, it was the Clinton view that was the more progressive view, because progressivism not tied to pragmatism is not progressive at all. And so, in fact, actually being you know more reactionary and moderate and all these things was the more progressive view, because that was just what politically realistic people thought. Biden didn't campaign like that. Biden lied, certainly, about how much we could afford and all that kind of stuff. He leaned very heavy into the red baiting, calling Bernie a socialist and all that bullshit. But he explicitly said, I'm not as left-wing as that guy. <laughs> And I think that's a good thing. It wasn't, I'm more left-wing than him. He's a sexist and a racist. It's, the party isn't as left-wing as Bernie. Well, that actually opens up a huge amount of political space to define what the left is. And then Biden just becomes whatever's in between that and the right-wingers in the party. So I think Biden, in some respects, is a weak candidate and that there's strength for us in that weakness. And there's a difference between saying, vote for this guy because that's what we need for democracy and because he's better than the other guy and saying, we think the left has a better chance of making influence in the next four years under a Biden presidency than under a Trump presidency. I think the latter is an entirely coherent position. Whether you agree with it or not, up to you. It doesn't actually matter even if I have to agree with that, because that's not a question that shapes the next thing I'm going to do tomorrow. It isn't the question I have to ask before I do everything. I can be umming and ahhing about that question and still keep doing all the work that actually I can make a difference on tomorrow. And I think most people that's probably true of too. Okay. I agree with that 100%. Let's move on to Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris didn't get a single delegate the entire primary. She said she was a real candidate. She took a bunch of shots at the left and then all of a sudden dropped out. But then after having that historic moment where she's like, I'm that girl and called Biden a racist, now all of a sudden she's his vice presidential candidate. And I guess my question to you is, is that looking at Harris as a person who had been an attorney general and has some tough things to answer for. I'm curious. A lot of people believe that she's been groomed to be the heir apparent and with the Democrats having a rather liberal view of what a free and fair primary is. The fear is that she's just a shoe in for the next round. And my question to you is, what do you think about Harris and how does she play into the future of left politics? I don't think she's a leftist at all. And again, I think the question doesn't have to be, do you think she's good or bad? I mean, she just is a fixture of things. And now the question is, how do you manage that or get the most juice out of it? I mean, I think probably my view is, my understanding at least, is a lot of the Harris staff, a lot of the support behind the scenes was the remnant from the Clinton machine. And I can certainly see her choice as VP with Biden to be another olive branch between certain wings of the elite side of the party or the establishment side of the party in the same way as Obama giving Secretary of State to Clinton, this is the sort of Clinton wing making sure that they're represented. And in some respects, I don't think the Obama wing 
had much of a remnant. Biden is in some sense the sort of last dregs. He ran a pretty kind of skeletal campaign this time, and I don't think anybody really was claiming that he had the best people of all the different campaigns. He didn't have the most energy and stuff. He just kind of kept his head down and became the residual and the person carrying on the inertia of the Obama presidency, which is still extraordinarily successful, unfortunately. I think with Harris, you know, on one hand, she ticks all the boxes. She's very articulate. She's got a good resume, all those kinds of things. She's got the right diversity characteristics for somebody that is supposed to be kind of the next generation of the party. On the other hand, I find her to be always coming up short in selling that to people. Outside of her very committed base, it doesn't seem to me to be a lot of people buying that as the next generation of identity politics within neoliberalism. And I think it's highly possible that Biden steps down before the end of his first term and hands it over to Harris. And leftists should be very well aware of that possibility and plan accordingly how they approach their strategy. But I don't think, again, like, I'm not sure whether that actually affects most people's decision of whether or not to go out tomorrow and spend the three hours you've got organizing for a Green New Deal or whatever else it is. I think a lot of those kinds of political questions are probably more important. Or what are you choosing to read this week? Or what's your media diet or whatever else? The kind of like presidential politics stuff to some degree becomes almost like parlor gossip or palace gossip. It's interesting because it's like the celebrities of this world. And I follow it. It's not that I'm saying you're an idiot if you follow it or anything, but it's not a determinative factor in most day-to-day activities. If you're the kind of person who is going to have to make a very different decision about how you spend your time based on whether you think Kamala Harris is the savior of the left or not, then I think you're probably in the vast minority of most people who are doing good work today. Sure. Absolutely. All right. So let me ask you, with Trump, almost from day one, people were talking about impeaching him. I think they were talking about impeaching him before he even took office. And finally, as time went on, right at a time where I felt like the energy would have been better spent doing exactly what you said, focusing on a Green New Deal, the political will and the political capital was shifted away from a Green New Deal and Medicare for all and put towards impeaching Donald Trump, which at the end of the day, is one of those symbolic gestures that really didn't amount to a whole lot of anything, but it did take a lot of air out of the focus we have a environment that's burning up right now. We see around the world, all kinds of clear evidence that if we don't take strong, swift action, instituting something like the green new deal, that this is all just chitter chatter as the tidal waves wash us away. I'm curious as to your view of the impeachment and what these kind of symbolic wars actually mean in the grand scheme of the theater that we watch it seems to me like a big waste of time. And it really seems like it starved us of an opportunity to advance critical life-saving legislation. I think on the question of symbolic acts, I believe deeply in symbolic acts, but I think the real question then just becomes which symbolic acts. I don't have much time or energy or interest in this one. You can see my own personal track record. I think I probably spent about as little time as humanly possible focusing on that and only to know how much I could avoid to think about it for them because I didn't think it was particularly useful and it wasn't. And you don't have to be a political genius to count how many votes you have in the Senate. And you don't have to be a news junkie to see just how much attention that whole thing took up when other things were more important. As a broader political strategy, my personal view is I find the sort of politics that's based on let me speak to your manager or like that's not fair, where's the teacher on the school ground? or 
if we just appeal high enough up, then the gods of fairness and justice will step in and save us. So just sort of pretty naive losing strategies. And I don't spend much time on them in my life. So when it comes to trying to get Trump called out on a technicality, I don't think it's really addressing why he came into being, how he got the power he did, and what would come next. I just don't find any part of that strategy to have actually been grounded in a good vision of what you're trying to achieve as much as just he's bad. There's got to be some way of getting the official bad stamp on his forehead. And this was it. Yeah, good luck with it. Let's look at RBG for a minute. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was pretty old when Obama was in there. And there was plenty of opportunity for her to step down at a time where a Democratic president could have nominated another Supreme Court justice to take her spot in a reasonable amount of time. She passed away a few weeks before the election, and we now have a stacked conservative court. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court and how that impacts us and maybe the role of politics in that arena? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was an extraordinarily stupid and self-centered decision. (laughs) I think she could have retired in the first month of Obama's presidency, and he could have tried to appoint a firebrand 35-year-old, and we could have had a firebrand 35-year-old progressive on the court for 40 years, which is how the Republicans are playing hardball when it comes to judicial nominations. I don't think that the only reason that didn't happen was because she didn't resign. I don't think Obama would have done that either. And frankly, at a certain point, this is a larger problem than just one justice. Probably the person whose jurisprudence I had the least contempt for on the Supreme Court since I moved to the United States was John Paul Stevens, and even him I had huge disagreements with. And so I just don't look to those particular people to be guiding lights on anything particularly progressive. I don't think it has been since the Warren Court or maybe a little bit afterwards. There's anybody on that court who actually is willing to go that far. And I spent a lot of time in copyright law. Justice Ginsburg was not progressive at all in that space. I care a lot about issues with racial justice and worked with kids who come from African-American backgrounds. And Justice Ginsburg barely hired a single black clerk. I don't have to pretend that criticizing her for those kinds of actions or other kinds of conservative decisions she's made somehow have a referendum on whether I think she was ever good on any issue. Yeah, there are issues she was good on, there's issues she pushed on, there's things that she trailblazed on. And there's a certain kind of personality and theory of politics that she had that I find incredibly harmful and dangerous and frankly, didn't expect much of her and she delivered on that. So I think at this point, packing the court and delegitimizing the procedural aspects of the court are pretty much the only way to stop the court becoming a reactionary vehicle for the next 40, 50 years. And the only question is whether we can convince enough average people and change the discourse on that, that that becomes a viable threat, if not a viable strategy for people in power before it's too late. What does packing the court mean? It means changing the number of justices on the court, which is something that is not constitutionally prohibited. It's something that's happened historically. You know, there were periods of time where there were nine justices on the court, etc. It just means adding more justices to the court. And then because whoever's in power would be the person with the power to add those justices, doing so in such a way that would ideologically rebalance the court. Understood. So adding four more justices so that there were 13 and making sure they're all 35-year-old firebrand leftists is what should happen, you know? in my opinion, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's probably not going to happen. And there's a whole bunch of people who are going to be in the way of that. And let's work on reducing those obstacles and pushing as hard as we can. Okay. So with that in mind, let me ask you, so I love the way you've put everything. I'm going to listen to this myself to try to 
rebalance some of my own expectations because I'm really digging deep. I'm really trying to be useful in this space. And I want to make sure I'm not guilty of doing some of these things that are not useful. And I know there's been times where I've taken a less than useful approach and I'm trying really hard to consider what that role that I want to play. And some of these things are questions that I've heard. Some of them are things that I'm thinking of as you're speaking, but ultimately I'm really interested in being useful. So I guess my question to you is at this point in time, what would you say to leftists right now who are discouraged in general? What are some things that you feel are areas that might be a good place to focus? Some things for people to consider. I think there's only so much generality you can provide in a response like this that's going to be helpful to anybody. But I think that the broadest thing I would say is you have to know two things, right? You have to know who you are and what's the situation in the world. So you've got to be able to look into a mirror and really be honest about where your strengths and weaknesses lie and where your capacities and limits are. And then you've got to have your ear to the ground so you actually know what the hell is going on. If you are finding yourself constantly surprised by events and there are people whose opinion and values you respect who aren't, to listen to those people until you can work out why it is that they saw something you didn't is probably an important part. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is just to have a direction. My old law professor who was a student of Thurgood Marshall said, you know, I think it was channeling him. All you need to know is exactly what you want, exactly how to get it. Right. And of course, those are not questions you can ever properly answer. But part of this is sort of knowing what it is that's getting you up every morning and what it is that you care most about. There are people that focus, for example, on racial justice, gender justice or immigrant justice or native justice or whatever else it is, because they know that those are the things that are most dear to them. Those are the things that sort of motivate them. Those are the things that they can have the most impact on, not because they don't care about those other issues or whatever, but because there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so many different things that you can put your attention towards. And that they're better in the spaces where they're going to keep getting up and doing that. Now, for some people, that might mean just trying to keep your life under control, trying to have the right values, instill those values in people you have influence in your personal life, donating money, voting on a certain day, and trying to stay sane. For other people, that might mean volunteering, getting involved in a local organization, whether it's, you know, Democratic Socialists of America or the Sunrise Movement or whatever else it is, Black Lives Matter organizations or Me Too groups, or whatever else. Again, the things that may be most relevant to your lived experience or to the things that you care the most about. And then I think that probably the other thing is just to be humble in the sense of don't try to reinvent the wheel simply because you either haven't done your homework or because you don't feel like a team player or something. You know, politics is a team sport and there's a role for people to take the initiative. And there's also a role for people to plug into existing systems institutions. I've set up organizations you set up organizations, but we both also part of larger communities and hold ourselves accountable to those larger communities. I think that's incredibly important. There are other institutions that I do work for because I believe that those institutions are good and I do that work for free and support them to try and make them more successful in what they're doing. Not because it comes back around to my professional life or to my organization, but because spread around the time that I have and do that work. And so if you're feeling dislocated, I would try to plug in. You're not the only person who cares about problems in the world. You're not alone. There are a lot of people around the world who care about a whole range of different issues. So get off the couch, get out of your house to the extent that that metaphorically is possible under COVID and find those communities. Find your people, find the place where you feel like you're useful and you feel like it's making a difference. And it's the think global, act local. Sometimes it's think local, act global. You know, it depends on what your position is. Sometimes it's being a keyboard warrior. Sometimes it's getting out and 
helping fix people's cars that are busted so that people associate your organization with actually helping people. Black Panthers famously had breakfast programs, breakfast lunch programs for kids. And each breakfast lunch just gets eaten, right? It's not like you sort of have a record and you kind of get to point to, it's like McDonald's 26 billion served or something like that, you know? But just the act of sort of thanklessly getting up and doing the work and then having the credibility that comes from that, I think is really important. And for a lot of people, there is work to be done, but they don't want to do that work. Well, maybe that's the problem. Maybe you've got to look at what you're willing to do. If it is reducible to voting, liking Facebook posts and getting outraged, then maybe that isn't enough. Maybe it needs to get more practical. Last question before we go, and this is a little bit of a deeper question. The rest of the world seems to have a lot of parliamentary systems, different coalitions and so forth. But in the U.S., we have a first-past-the-post duopoly and a lot of negativity within the duopoly towards third-party efforts. There was a great push to keep third parties off the ballot this election. Addie Barkin was celebrating the fact that the Green Party was eliminated from the ballot, which just baffled me. What are your thoughts on third-party politics in America? Does it have a legitimate place in the structure of the United States political world. Yeah, of course it does. There was a point in time when there wasn't such thing called the Republican Party. You know, there was a point in time where there wasn't such thing called the Democratic Party. It's a peculiar and bizarre world to imagine this particular snapshot as somehow being universal or eternal. It's all historically contingent, and who knows? Ten years from now, there could be a complete collapse and something goes wrong. I've seen other countries where the political parties cease to exist. In Greece, one party almost was wiped down and then had a massive resurgence. In other places, third parties have held the crucial kingmaker vote in a coalition, and then the next election got zero seats. We've seen Macron's party come out of nowhere to win an entire election and a presidency. So anyone that thinks that there's no possibility of that, I think, is losing themselves. That doesn't mean that the Green Party or the Libertarian Party is going to be the vehicle to do that, or that just doing what's been done for the last 10 elections as a third party for an 11th time is going to do that. But it does mean that this, all there is, is the two parties. There will always be the two parties. Everything can be reducible to that. I think is just wrong. You mentioned Warren Moser because he had some comments about my ideas in your last interview. I've had this conversation with him about his proposal for electoral financing, where he says, you know, anyone can give anything, but 40% has to go to the other person. Well, I think that's just completely bonkers because first of all, it treats every problem as reducible down to two sides. It treats the entire political system as down to two actors. That kind of stuff immediately breaks down when you consider the possibility, first, of more than two parties or two sides of an issue, but also possibilities of what do you do with historical data and predicting future trends? Does the party that got 3% last time get 3% of the minority share of the 60-40 split or whatever it is? You know, There's no way of allocating those funds barely ex-ante by Tweedledee versus Tweedledum kind of dichotomy. So in my opinion, you can't have a theory of politics that's reducible to those two parties. That said, the US voting system and the first past the post system and all that stuff does lend itself to resolving in favor over time, usually of two parties or splitting down the middle. And there'd be very good ways to look at reforms that could change that. There are proportional representation systems, there are multi-member systems, there are alternative vote or ranked choice voting systems. And then there's also things like having compulsory voting. If you had compulsory voting in this country and you went from 30, 35% voting turnout to 80, 90% turnout, that would absolutely change the political landscape overnight. Who knows whether the parties that exist today would be the parties that got the majority in that situation. It would just be unfathomable. And the same thing would be true if there was a different campaign financing structure. So 
again, I think that you can take seriously these people who try to gaslight you about that, or you can just tell them to get fucked and move on and spend your time thinking about more important issues. If you don't feel like you can vote for those parties, don't vote for them. You don't owe your vote to anybody. And none of these people who lecture you about voting have the moral kind of high ground to say that it's your fault if the election goes a different direction. That was great. And on that happy note, I'm going to let you go. Ron, please let everyone know what places we can find you. I've got a website, rongray.net, with just my random writings. And you can find me on Twitter and things. And the present, the Modern Money Network, and we were pretty visible in this community. So hopefully you know where I am. Feel free to reach out with anything. But thanks for taking the time, Steve, as always. A pleasure. Absolutely. All right. So this was Steve Grumbine, Rowan Gray, Macro and Cheese. We're out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Mindy Donham. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives. I want the truth!